Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. This month, we're pleased to bring you a special episode, a panel discussion on the past, present, and future of behavioral health from a Digital Health Innovation Summit Spotlight episode. The panel is moderated by Dan Gabramedin, a partner at Flare Capital Partners. Let's listen in. All right. Uh, thank you so much uh, to the whole DHIS uh, crew. Really appreciate your time. Thanks to, to Goodwin uh, for, for sponsoring uh, the event. And, and like any good virtual conference, I've, I've switched backgrounds. I've switched clothes. And so uh, excited to be with you guys here today again. Um, so I'm thrilled to introduce, you know, our panel. Uh, we're calling this Behavioral Health Tech uh, Past, uh, Present, and Future. We've collected uh, some of the most talented, you know, kind of entrepreneurs and operators in the behavioral health tech uh, space that I've, I've gotten to know over the years. Um, you know, first, uh, Corbin Petro uh, is the CEO and co-founder of, of Eleanor Health. Um, but, you know, prior to her time with Eleanor, uh, which is a leading behavioral health tech company focused on populations uh, struggling with uh, substance use disorder disease, um, she had a long career in health plan operations. Um, you know, we actually worked together at the Harvard Pilgrim Health Plan, uh, where uh, Corbin was the CEO of Benavera, which was a joint venture payer provider. And then prior to that, spent several years at Massachusetts Medicaid. Uh, next, uh, we have uh, Rita Panda, who is the chief medical officer uh, of Able to, uh, but a fun fact, um, you know, she actually is a cardiologist, trained as a cardiologist, practiced as a cardiologist for several years uh, at the Brigham and, and Women's Hospital, and Able to has been such an important uh, company in the behavioral health tech uh, landscape that uh, has, has really, you know, birthed, you know, a handful of other companies as well. Um, uh, Seth Fierstein, uh, who is the CEO and co-founder of WeHealth, uh, full disclosure, uh, Flare Capital uh, is an investor uh, in WeHealth. Um, you know, Seth is trained uh, as a presenter, uh, 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 as a psychiatrist, uh, who uh, prior to founding uh, WeHealth was the founder of Cobalt uh, Therapeutics, a company that was acquired uh, by Magellan. And for several years, uh, Seth uh, served as uh, the chief medical innovation officer at Magellan Health. So excited to have you here. And then Samar Malik, um, CEO of, of Genoa Telepsychiatry. Uh, which is within the United Health Group umbrella. Uh, prior to Genoa, uh, Samer was the founder of One Doc Way, a leading, you know, early stage behavioral health tech company focused on telepsychiatry. Uh, Flair attempted unsuccessfully to invest in Samer's company, uh, but we continue to be uh, very, very uh, close uh, kind of friends and colleagues. And uh, he is one of my first calls anytime we're looking at a new behavioral health tech opportunity. Um, so, you know, I think as we, as I promised before uh, in our in our prep session, um, you know, we just had a great uh, a great call uh, with uh, Cara McNulty, uh, president of Aetna BH. Um, and for for this panel, uh, there are going to be no softball questions. Uh, we are going to dive right uh, into it um, with some of the I think most challenging issues in behavioral health tech uh, that I know that we think about, but I know that you guys are on the front lines uh, actually implementing and trying to solve. Um, so I, I might start with you, Corbin. Um, you know, thinking about our behavioral health system and a lot of the work that has happened over the last decade has been substantial. Uh, but I might argue we are still solving for access. We have not yet begun to solve for quality outcomes. Uh, and then when you think about our payment system, um, oftentimes we are primarily, you know, mired in a fee-for-service system. 
are we ready to start solving for quality outcomes? When will it happen? What is needed? Corbin, love to get your thoughts. Thanks, Dan. And thanks for, thanks for having all of us in this discussion. Excited to, to talk with my colleagues here. So absolutely, you know, access continues to be an issue. And I would argue particularly with, with more vulnerable um, populations. So a lot of the solutions that have emerged over the past couple of years that, that support access to behavioral health uh, and mental health care um, are, are for commercial populations focused on an employer population. And so there continues to be um, challenges, but it's never too early to talk about quality and outcomes. I think one of the interesting and confounding parts of the behavioral health space is that we've lacked consistent measures and metrics and outcomes with which to, to you know, identify where, where we're successful. So it's a very fragmented industry. Um, most of the independent practitioners aren't measuring outcomes. And so from a solutions perspective, I think it's getting to what makes sense. And particularly in the space that, that we work in at Eleanor Health and substance use disorder, we've relied, you know, I think heavily on measures and metrics that have been, that were created out of stigma. So abstinence, uh, negative urine drug screens, those aren't key indicators of quality or successful human outcomes. So I think that's an issue. And then the final piece around, around payment, we haven't gotten to, to good value-based payment models. I can talk a little bit about how, how we think about that. But part of it is just reimbursement. So we had the, the Mental Health and Addiction Parity Act that was intended to bring parity to, to mental health reimbursement. And we really haven't seen that happen. I, there was a, you know, I, I know in Mass we're here in Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts, the attorney general sued many of the health plans for, for reimbursement around mental health and, and found in a two, 2019 study that uh, reimbursement for mental health care providers was at 60% of what it was for um, primary care for the same codes and same services. So that continues to be an issue as well. I think we maybe don't have your audio there, Dan. I can't hear you. Oh, thank you so there much. Uh, Rena, it's perfect. Virtual conference, uh, part <laughs> for the course. Rena, um, you know, your time at Able to, I mean, you guys have been such a foundational company in this behavioral health landscape. Um, and, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how you have approached, you know, your value proposition, uh, you know, maybe just to tease it. Um, you guys work on populations that have comorbidities, right? And so you are thinking a lot about, you know, how behavioral health can impact medical health and overall outcomes. We'd love to get your perspective on, you know, are we ready to solve for quality outcomes um, and how we think about payment? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And uh, I'll echo a lot of what Corbin said, but, um, and I'll add to it. I think, I, I, we don't think about it as, are we ready? I think we have to do it. Um, so we, if, if people aren't ready, they need to get ready um, because, for too long, we have uh, delivered care and mental health without measurement. And that decision, there are some measures, I, Corbin, I love your perspective, that there are measures that are that actually don't reflect well human outcomes, but there are a lot of other measures that are just not being utilized. So it's not that there isn't good evidence base and that there aren't validated assessments, they're just not being used. Um, and so I think we have to push providers to start to measure and do proper measurement-based care. Um, and then hold those providers to delivering on those outcomes. For us, um, as you're pointing out, you know, we, we were at the outset focused on 
this challenging population that has comorbid mental health and physical health issues. And the, the big outcome up beyond behavioral health symptom improvement was medical cost. You know, I mean, to get anybody to talk to us, we had to speak the language that our payer or employer prospective partners were speaking. And there wasn't sufficient even appreciation of the impact that mental health could have on overall spend a decade ago. Um, and so the outcomes we picked were meaty ones, right? Let's prove to you that by by addressing mental health, we can actually have an impact on hospital utilization, ER utilization, and ultimately total cost of care. And it was those types of outcomes that really started to get people paying attention to, to the space. And not just us, I think others have been talking about this for a while too. So, But I think we, we have to move beyond access for sure. And if we're not ready, we have to get ready. And I think a lot of us on this panel actually have have spent a lot of years thinking about how to how to deliver on outcomes and quality of care above just access alone. You know, really, really great context, Rena. And you know, I, I take that charge, right? The next the next wave of entrepreneurs are going to be focused on you know quality outcomes. And Samer, I mean, you were quite early into the telepsychiatry uh, business, and you you've pushed it forward. Um, do you bristle when I talk about telepsychiatry only solving for access? not solving for quality outcomes. How do you think about that concept? I don't bristle. I think it's, it's the honest evaluation of where mental health technology and innovation has been over the past six or seven years is, is focusing concretely on the access side of the equation. Um, I would suggest that the framing needs to evolve from either or to an and conversation. Uh, those of us who are out there doing work ought to be doing both expansion of access and doing so in an outcomes-oriented way and having the infrastructure and the measures to do so. What I think is interesting about now, to answer your question at the top, Dan, is we have so many more entrants and so much more capital in the behavioral health space that we can now afford to walk and chew gum at the same time. This was not the case a decade ago. There were no resources to think critically about what infrastructure needs to be put in place in order to measure outcomes in behavioral health. There was no infrastructure in available to hire strategists and think critically about how do you redesign systems to do this. As a country, we've evolved and we're now thinking more critically about mental health that allows us to do more in the space than we could before. So, so now is absolutely the time and it's still a few years too late. No, really, really great context. Um, I might I might switch gears uh, a little bit and talk about um, you know behavioral health broadly within uh, the time of the pandemic um, has kind of risen to the forefront. We, we're all challenging you know kind of with our own behavioral health issues. Populations you know with, with serious mental illness are, are struggling as well. Uh, they have been dealing with a lot of access challenges prior to the pandemic, and you know kind of given how resource constrained we are in this time, um, the, the population is struggling. Would love to better understand how you guys think about special populations, um, populations you know struggling with serious mental illness, struggling with substance use disorder, the stigma and the persistent access challenges that they face in the time of the pandemic. Seth, I might start out with you, and maybe worthwhile to talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing. Sure, um, thanks, Dan. You know, and building on on some of what what the others have said, I, I think just a little bit of context partially because I bristle about something, so I, I will mention it. You know, <laughs> the idea that mental health care is somehow worse at using outcome metrics and other parts of medicine is actually not true. All of medicine is terrible at it. 
try to figure out which orthopedics group has good back surgery results six to 12 months afterwards, you can't find a payer that knows. Try to figure out which dermatologists are doing the right number of biopsies on which patients and what the long-term outcomes are for their malignant patients. You don't know. Uh, it doesn't mean it's an excuse. It's a problem throughout medicine. I think one of the misunderstandings is something that, that both Corbin and Rena spoke about, which is we do have really good measures or we're often not using those, the right measures. One of the unique assets in behavioral and mental health care is that we can actually measure how people are behaving. <laughs> we can see how they're doing. You can't always do that in other disorders. So while we may have numerical metrics like blood pressure in cardiology, blood pressure is actually not a measure of health. It's just an objective number. So it feels concrete. But actually, other than being a risk factor, it's kind of meaningless for most people, even people with hypertension. And you can talk about hypertension management as almost a case study in how having an objective number hasn't led to good management of blood pressure. Uh, I think the studies are pretty clear that some people have made a dent in it, like you know Kaiser through incentivizing clinicians, but most primary care clinicians do a lousy job, even though they have an objective number. So what you know, Samir talked about is a really good example. Like you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. And so when it comes to parity, I do you know I, it, I do bristle when people make a distinction between mental health care and other specialties because it's actually a bias that isn't accurate. On the SMI side, I think it's really important to think about what can technology do that we haven't been able to solve for in other parts of mental health care and the healthcare ecosystem. And I think one of the things that is really an opportunity, and, and I always like to differentiate between sort of preventive and intervention care. So like if you think about the heart, right, there's heart health, which is like exercise, good eating, managing your blood pressure. And then there's intervention. When someone is very sick, what do we do for the arrhythmia, for the myocardial infarction patient, for the heart failure patient? And so when, when just so everyone's aware, I think when most people say SMI, serious mental illness, they're talking about people with significant dysfunction, a major disability. And I think most people wouldn't include your typical depressed patient, but they would certainly include your treatment-resistant depressed patient, your hospitalized depressed patient your schizophrenia patient, your suicide risk patient, someone who's had an attempt or is at high risk. I think what we're seeing is similar to what happened in oncology in the 1960s. You know, in the 1960s, and I learned this from reading a, an excellent book called The Emperor of All Maladies, apparently no one would talk about cancer. It was a big secret. It would rarely leave the nuclear home, right? You wouldn't tell your cousins, you wouldn't tell your aunts, your grandparents, and you often wouldn't even tell your children it was like this hush topic. We would talk about chemotherapy. It was a relatively crude field. Outcomes were, were not discussed or well-validated. And then we came into this era of precision medicine that I think was spearheaded by oncology care. And we were using genetic information and proteomic information to better target what worked for what people. And you saw an evolution. We stopped talking about kidney cancer and colon cancer and breast cancer. And instead, we started talking about HER2 positive, specific markers, what would react to those markers. And one of the wonderful and beautiful things about technology and mental health care is that I believe software and data is the precision interface for the brain. Just like genetics and proteomics can be used for things like cancer, when it comes to how people are acting and behaving and how they're doing, 
software can interact with people and measure things in a quantifiable way that was actually not possible in traditional in-office interactions. So when you combine better access, better matching of outcome measures with some of the new resources that are becoming available, you end up with an ecosystem that can leapfrog in terms of progress the way that happened in oncology. In my personal work, I mean, I spend a lot of time focusing on suicide. It's an area where most of the system doesn't want to interact with patients. It's a huge problem. There are interventions that can work, but they're highly specialized. And this is true across multiple serious mental illness populations. Corbin's work is an example where there are interventions that are very effective for certain subtypes of patients with addiction, for, an, for instance. And if we can bring those resources to bear, do it in a quantified way, measure better total performance and outcome for that individual, which might vary even from person to person. How they're doing might be relative to them and not to the ecosystem. You know, to, to me, that's exciting. I mean, we, we have found receptivity around suicide in particular from a lot of different key stakeholders. And the, 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 the truth is the fundamental structure of our payment and network infrastructure simply is not able to solve the problem because there are fundamental ways in the way it's paid for and dealt with that simply can't solve it. You need to bring new stakeholders together in new ways in order to solve problems like it. A really, really great overview, Seth. You touched on a lot of important points, but that last one I think is so um, you know, intrinsic to I think what I've seen in behavioral health tech, uh, but even health tech broadly, um, the, the solutions to a lot of the, the, the medical problems um, that I think our, our, our population is facing, you know, it's not rocket science, right? I think the tech is available. Uh, you can put it together, but the, the system just won't reimburse for it. The business models just have not been aligned. And it's the work of, you know, talented entrepreneurs like yourself. You kind of have to kick down the door and create your own model. Um, and so maybe, you know, transitioning over back to you, Corbin, uh, talk a little bit about your work at Eleanor, you know, how you're working with, you know, SUD populations, and then also the hard work around payment models. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, and thank, thanks, Seth, for, for your comments there. I think, um, obviously, a lot of those a lot of those resonated. But I think for, for special populations, you know, SUD in particular, we viewed very separate from, from healthcare for a long time, and even separate from mental health. And I think looking at it with the lens of what it really is, which it's a chronic condition, highly treatable, chronic condition that should be treated longitudinally. And so when I think about the best payment model for that, that type of condition, it's not a fee-for-service, which is episodic in time of care. I mean, it's not a bundle, which is longer period, but also sort of episodic in nature. It's more of a medical home, uh, a population-based model where you're much like a PCP, you're managing care for, for a longer period of time. And so that's the model that, that we aim to, to work with payers around is really treating us as a as a mental health medical home where we're taking care of all of a, a patient's mental health needs under the same roof and then coordinating for the other care. Again, much like a PCP does with the majority of people, it makes sense for those folks where they can take care of and coordinate for the, the various needs. We believe we're a better quarterback and a better sort of relationship and trusted entry point for folks who have SUD. And I would argue SMI falls into the, the exact same category where taking care of these populations longitudinally um, is, is um, you know, best for the healthcare system. And I would also argue that to your point, Rena, earlier around total cost of care, significant total cost of care reductions when you're actually taking care of these people in the places where they, where they should be. So we, 
in our in our medical home model, we have an 84% reduction in ED and inpatient utilization. Well, that's just because we're taking care of them in the in the place that's best suited for them. So I think that's you know our model is new, um, and so you know it, it takes a while for people to catch up to to what really makes sense. Um, but I think from a clinical perspective, from sort of the longitudinal care perspective, that's where we we aim to be with our model. I just you know I have to ask if I can expand on that. What, what Corbin just said, you know, because cost of care has come up twice. It is really important when you're building the model, but we'll know we have actually reached parity when Corbin can go to a payer and say, we reduced overdose death and each life is actually worth something separate from the cost of care. Just like in oncology and in cardiology, where payers will pay to reduce the death of their members we have now achieved something when if you reduce the number of deaths, somebody actually says, that's worth $100,000. I will pay you for that, just like they do in the orphan drug world and in the oncology treatment world. That is actually where the field is, is hopefully heading and where value-based models will eventually land, separate from just reducing the overall cost of care as, you know, when you're looking at outcome metrics, I think. I hope I hope so, but you know the, the societal impact is so deep with some of these interventions and these models, where it's it's not just total cost of care for a health plan, which health plans care about a one year view of total cost of care. So you sort of gotta you gotta tailor your message. But what about you know public health and state government entities, where we're looking at employment and recidivism and you know incarceration? You're looking at so many different measures. I'd love for my my stakeholder and who I'm selling to to care about all those things. Maybe they do if if they're a very mission driven organization. But at the end of the day, you sort of have to tailor your your message. So I I I'm I'm with you, Seth. I I dream for the day that those are those are the <laughs> metrics that we're reporting on. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that. I mean, I think the bar is um, the bar is different. The bar is set differently for behavioral health than it is for the rest of healthcare, and it's high. And so to have to prove that you will not just break even, but actually save someone money. Um, wow. Right. I mean, when I just to poke at cardiology, right. Nobody, nobody, you know, raises any eyebrows about bypass surgery or catheterization. I mean, obviously there's, there are folks that are doing inappropriate levels, but even just accepted standard care, we, we acknowledge that that's going to cost money. Like patients are on dialysis. That will cost money. Nobody's asking to prove an, a return on investment for what we would consider good standard care. But in behavioral health, that bar is so much higher, right? It, we should be at a place, maybe one day, we're not there right now, where they get it. Look, patients feeling better, having better clinical outcomes, better quality of life, is acceptable as the endpoint, but the bar is way up here. And we got to figure out how to bring, you know, bring the worlds together. No, just a great conversation, and and, and I love the the back and forth. And and, and Samer, I may kind of take it back to you. Um, you know, one of the things that I heard, um, you know, in your comments uh, is this concept of, uh, you know, how do you assess value, right? And and attribution of savings. Uh, is probably one of the hardest things to do when you're managing populations. Um, you know, Samer, you now sit within a large uh, payer. Uh, how do you think about when you hear uh, a behavioral health company say that, oh, we're going to save, uh, you know, three to one ROI, we're going to save this much money. How do you think about those claims um, 
should behavioral health companies be making those claims? Um, you know, is it worthwhile? Is, is shared savings a possibility for some of these companies? We'd love to kind of get your thoughts as an entrepreneur and now as, you know, potentially a buyer of technology. Yeah. Uh, the, the, both the long and the short answer here is the push needs to be two-sided. You have payers, United and others, it's not just United, uh, thinking hard about how do you change the dynamic around behavioral health. Behavioral health has been carved out traditionally to manage behavioral health plans, and that can sometimes create a disjointment of incentives. I'm sure Rena can, can elucidate on the challenge of investing on the behavioral side of the house and trying to uh, save money on the medical side of the house. So there needs to be some structural change on the payer side of things to help think critically about, well, how do we make the right investments to think about the patient in their totality? Now, both Corbin and Seth mentioned this moments ago around thinking about patients in a holistic perspective, not behavioral as a linear myopic um, uh, disease to be managed. And we all know it's not that. So, so to, to kind of speak more concretely to your question, Dan, we're in a place right now where the definition of how behavioral will be defined in a value-based environment is still TBD. And so you have payers trying things out. You have Optum doing behavioral health home models for the SMI population. Uh, we've contracted under unique models with Eleanor and also with Able2 to try innovative concepts here. But the book isn't written on what the definitive truth will be on how do you measure outcomes and what does shared savings look like and do you take total cost of care attribution for a certain cohort within behavioral health. So having entrepreneurs and new businesses push new concepts and have a laboratory of hundreds of different experiments happening is going to be an important way for us to land on the models that should persist into the long run. Uh, but, but I think it's too early to say, hey, this is the tight definition of what value looks like in behavioral health delivery as agreed to by both payers and providers. Super, super helpful context, uh, Summer. Um, going to stick with you, going to switch gears for a second. Um, up until now in this conversation, uh, we've been talking about payers. Uh, we've been talking about providers. We've been talking about other large organizations. One of the things we haven't talked about uh, is the purchasing power of the consumer uh, when it comes to behavioral health. Um, and I would say that, you know, I probably for the first, you know, kind of two to three decades of behavioral health tech, uh, entrepreneurship and, you know, enterprise innovation, um, they've been trying to primarily sell, uh, you know, kind of into these large organizations. But what we've seen uh, in the last, you know, call it, you know, kind of 24 to 36 months uh, is the rise of these direct-to-consumer, uh, you know, quasi-telehealth pharmacy uh, companies. Uh, and now we're starting to see, you know, behavioral health versions of those things. I mean, those large, you know, big players like Hims Row, they're slowly kind of making their way into behavioral health. But then you have pure play, direct-to-consumer behavioral health, medication management companies uh, that are getting really interesting traction. Uh, you know, Samer, you know, as somebody who's kind of, um, you know, kind of lived most of your life on the enterprise, but I know that you spend time with some of these companies. How are you thinking about the changing of the landscape and the changing of the BH customer? So, you know, you think about some of these direct-to-consumer applications, and I'd say there's a double-edged sword on this one. On the one hand, these efforts are truly compressing the cost of service delivery. And that, that can ostensibly be a really important thing when we're already short on access and we're struggling systemically with costs, right? So if you're taking um, the prescribing of antidepressants, which in the pre 
D to C world, at best, you know, one clinician could do four or five of those in an hour. And now in a Roman or hymns, you can do 15 or 20 of those in an hour. You're, you're starting to see the creation of new capacity in behavioral health service delivery, right? And we've all talked about earlier on how access is a challenge and how finding enough supply in the marketplace is problematic. So compressing the cost of service delivery and creating more capacity per clinician is a very important development. On the other hand, right, the other side of that blade is one, clinical standards, and two, societal questions about whether or not antidepressants should be first-line treatments. I, I don't think personally that they ought to be and that you have great tools out there. Uh, Rena represents one of them that ought to stand in as a frontline first effect to try to manage mental health conditions before you turn to antidepressants. And the danger of the propagation of the Roe and Hims and others doing behavioral health in their light touch way is that you're reducing the friction and you're reducing the hurdle to access antidepressants as a first line treatment. Uh, for for mild depressive disorders, uh, so so we should move in that direction, but we should be very thoughtful about how does the system need to be designed such that we don't abuse the ease with which uh, you know the direct to consumer effects are creating in behavioral health. Yeah, I think I saw super Seth super. Yeah, Irina, please please chime in. Yeah. Too, so happy to. Uh, you look like you have a comment. You want to jump in? Uh, Who, me? Yeah, you no. look like you want to say I, something. I have a lot of comments. <laughs> <laughs> we go right, way back. Right, about, I'll now. Yeah. One quick comment, how, how and then I'll pass go, the baton to you. Um, for, for your many. Um, yeah, I, Summer, I think you, you hit it on the head. I mean, I love the, I, you know, more behavioral health to more people in need is obviously a good thing. But the but is, you, you hit, you know, it's, it's not even just specific to like, antidepressants, but behavioral health is not one thing. It is very complex. It is a heterogeneous set of conditions, and there is a range of interventions that are required. I mean, represented by all of us who kind of hit, a, you know, different pieces of the of the spectrum of patients who have varying needs. And I think the, the challenge that the direct-to-consumer model faces is is trying to oversimplify what is actually quite complex field. Complexity is not a vice in healthcare. I mean, a couple of us are physicians. Like there is, there is some black and white, but there's a whole lot of gray. And in behavioral health, there's a there's a lot of gray. And I think what we need to simplify for patients is helping them get to the right intervention, to the right next step, and not yeah. I mean. How would you know? Like, I, I wouldn't know. I'm a physician, and I wouldn't know what the right next step is necessarily as a patient. Is it an antidepressant? Is it psychotherapy? Is it a combination therein? And I, I, that's where my worry starts to go up, is that, that people are kind of going direct to a thing that might not be the actual best intervention to get them the best clinical outcome that their complex condition may require. Seth, I mean, Rena, Rena and Sommer are being very politically like, <laughs> nice about the reality. Lots of psych meds are way overutilized. It's just a fact. We don't need to beat around the bush. Yeah. In some sure. ways, you look at prescription medication capacity, we have 200% of what we need right now in the United States. There's way more meds going around than are ever been, have ever been shown to be helpful for lots of the patients that are getting them. It's a lot like insomnia and low back pain. Everybody knows that sleep medications, for the most part, are not what most of the patients who get them need. Everyone knows that pain meds are not the best first option for low back pain. 
actually behaviors are the best thing for both of those large groups of patients. They're both among the top five complaints in primary care, and they are both horrifically mismanaged throughout the healthcare system to the damage of the patient. It's not just that they're not getting the right thing first, it's that those medications can be addictive, can cause increased fall risk. These are huge drivers of bad outcomes across every age group. Psychiatry is no different than those other than those orthopedic and you know neurologic conditions as they're tr- traditionally categorized, and I think you know the reality is you know I think I'm optimistic actually that those direct to consumer models will largely fail. I think what we will see is that <laughs> there'll be like an initial burst. There's hundreds of millions of and by the way, for full disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of one of the largest direct to consumer mental health companies. That business is actually going quite well, but it's a very different model than sort of combining medications <laughs> with like direct to consumer rapid RX. And I think, you know, what, what you see when you look at direct to consumer is that it has really helped with the experience side of what happens with telehealth. But I think overall, what you will see is those companies always go back to the enterprise because the American consumer, at least, is largely not looking to pay cash for the most part. For this kind of like subscription fee, et cetera, lots of money has been raised. Some of my best friends have invested, you know, in these companies, whatever. But I think, you know, direct to consumer has enhanced the way we think about how you should interact. But I think over time it will show that it has worsened outcomes in some of these new models with rapid prescribing that Samer referenced. And I think to me, what they can really solve for is like what Rena has done on the medical side originally at Able to, and you know. I have hats off to Michael Laskoff, who's not here, but who like, you know, we're all friends with and who started the company. And actually the data that gets collected will enhance the ability to more rapidly give those behavioral interventions as a first line where it's appropriate. One of the most shocking things I ever read was in a treatment guideline uh, for one of the conditions where a type of cognitive behavioral therapy is clearly the first line. It actually says in the treatment guidelines for the psychiatric condition the first line that should be provided to the patient, if it is available, mm-hmm. actually what it says in the treatment guidelines. I don't think you'd find a comment like that in treatment guidelines for anything in another disease category other than something in psychiatry. And that's actually what I think the direct-to-consumer models are going to enhance, is a lot of those companies are trying to put those right tools in front of the patients first, You know, whether it's a bright side or a bright line or a cerebral, or a talk space, all these different companies that are going direct to consumer are putting new tools in front of patients to try to solve for that problem. And that will lead to significant progress, I think. And that'll be a huge advance that the D2C market brings across you know, all the different marketplaces, I think. I'll just, I'll just add um, a, a couple things. So I think you know, the, the direct to consumer, as we've all said, sort of pro, pros and cons, and I think what it what it reveals is, you know, there in healthcare there is a limited willingness to pay for for most things. I think there are certain things that certain people will pay for, and those include medications, um, particularly some of the medic- medications that we've been talking about, and therapy. And so when there's a willingness to pay for certain things, it sort of brings to the patient that they are then sort of directing their own care outside of what would be clinical guidelines. But what it also does is it. Um, it, it makes those those resources. It creates more access gaps, right? So, so you know, I always I always say to payers, you know, given what you pay for for therapy, it's it's 
it's no, you know, it's no surprise that there's an access gap for, for therapy because many therapists can go out and get self-pay for their entire panel and make a great living. And so why would they make themselves available to a payer? And what that then creates a shortage for are the people who, you know, are more vulnerable. I mentioned vulnerable populations earlier and they're, they're always top of mind. So people who, you know, don't have an ability to pay now these resources are even more constrained for them. So they don't have access to therapy or psychiatry or, or you know, medication and prescribing resources. And that's, that's really where we see the costs mm-hmm. in our system. And so, you know, that's, that's another issue is sort of purely direct to consumer models. It's such a great call out. I, I will add one positive, which is that it's made mental health mainstream. I mean, it's to, to give, to give folks credit, right? Uh, Okay, like TV commercials, um, talking about mental health, celebrities getting on the mental health bandwagon, great. I mean, we need more and more and more people continuing to say this is needs attention. And I give my hats off to the direct-to-consumer folks for, for really elevating the conversation and bringing it mainstream. Really, really, really great discussion. And, you know, it's an active one. Um, you know, we're seeing an increasing number of uh, direct-to-consumer behavioral health companies coming to market with real traction, uh, you know, you know, anywhere between three and five you know, million dollars in, in revenue on a recurring basis. Um, so, uh, you know, people are people are certainly taking notice, but a great, great discussion and great commentary. Um, we've got a number of questions from the audience. And so encourage the audience to uh, kind of type in their questions. Um, and, and this ties to one of the questions that I had as well. So we'll, we'll lead with this. You know, one barrier to telemedicine, particularly in behavioral health, uh, was reimbursement. Uh, this changed very quickly with COVID-19. Uh, do you think that this is a permanent change or will we slide backwards? We're not going to keep all the maybe I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, we're not going to start with you, then, get- then Seth, maybe. It's going to be one of those two steps forward, one steps back type thing. We, we created a truckload of progress uh, on telehealth adoption and regulation in honestly a matter of about 48 hours in the middle of March. Um, <laughs> uh, on the, and it took us a decade of you know, uh, raising our voices and putting together policy papers and putting together research that yielded much less of an effect over a decade than what was achieved in honestly two days. Now, uh, you know, we can look at, at reimbursement and, and regulatory changes in, in four buckets. Um, uh, site of service, right? CMS now allows for care to be delivered in the home. Uh, licensure, the ability to st- treat patients outside of the state in which a provider is licensed. HIPAA, uh, so the use of tools like Zoom, Skype, FaceTime. And then fourth is just services that are now telehealth eligible. I think items one and four are here to stay. Side of service, the home is now undeniably uh, a place of care, and you're seeing CMS indicate as such. Private payers were getting there. They really opened up the floodgates for COVID, and that's going to be a hard one to unwind. If you're a payer, think about that. You've just made it so much easier for your members to access care. Taking that away from them is, is going to run into a lot of friction. Um, and then volume of service or the quantity of services that can be reimbursed by telehealth, uh, a lot of that I anticipate will stick if you just look at what CMS is talking about uh, in terms of trying to make things permanent. HIPAA won't stick, and it probably shouldn't, to be honest. Um, 
you know, it, it will be good to normalize and deliver experiences on standard secure platforms and really encourage technology innovators to continue thinking about privacy and compliance on the forefront rather than it being relegated to, yeah, we're fine. And then lastly, the one that's a question mark and I'm hopeful for, but to be honest, if you made me pick today, I'd say isn't going to stick is licensure. Uh, the liquidity of provider capacity to move across state lines is a beautiful thing. Uh, it allows us to be very dynamic in finding specialists. It allows us to be thoughtful about moving supply and demand across markets to ensure that there's good balancing. Um, state licensure boards have been very resistant to that change, uh, but COVID has forced their hand on this one. I think if we get on the other side of the public health emergency, you will see state licensure boards be still recalcitrant to offer good state-to-state reciprocity. The one hope you have on that one is uh, the federal government coming up with some sort of federal licensure. That's going to require a lot of political will and muscle to pull off, uh, but one that you can kind of hold out hope for rather than expecting all 50 states to, to cede some authority on this. Yeah, I agree with Samar, but I would add a couple of things, which is that I think the state-to-state licensure issue varies a little bit from the service. So, so I think it's it is inevitable. It's a question of is it going to take six years or twenty years for that that interstate issue, the friction to disappear. But the interesting thing is when you think about uh, you know what Amazon is now doing in Washington, but will you know become national, and what um, able tos of the world and and you know some of the work I'm doing around suicide prevention and other companies that are scaling. Once you get to a certain size, getting individuals licensed in multiple states actually is a solvable kind of fixed cost issue. And so I think as those barriers come down, this resistance at the state, you're going to see a tipping point. So when you think about what I'd call individual markets that are essentially monopolies, like from a legal perspective, right? You're controlling your own regional monopoly those barriers are coming down directly or indirectly. And by indirectly, I mean, and this is an area where the direct-to-consumer companies have a lot of capital and are working on it aggressively. If I can get somebody licensed in 20 states, it's a workaround for me for some capacity issues. And so for the state boards that are more resistant and, and state legislators that are creating more friction, those barriers are kind of coming down anyway with scale. Uh, in the sense of applying G&A and direct overhead costs. And so the practical reality is that some of that friction is disappearing. It's unfortunate that it's taking this long because there are services that are clearly not being made available to certain people who really need them because of it um, from a clinical perspective. So, but Samer's summary was really outstanding. No, really great. Another another question, Uh, this is a really good question. Um, you know, what do you anticipate or would you like to see regarding opportunities to innovate around behavioral health integration uh, with medical care and coordination of care uh, for behavioral health, you know, especially those populations dealing with comorbidities? Is this an access quality or outcome opportunity? Oftentimes you'll hear this referred to as collaborative care. Um, you know, I don't know, Rena, if you want to touch on this, this is open for the, for the group. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to start, and I'm sure others have com- have comments as well. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, as I think most of us will appreciate that, you know, it's just one person. It's just one patient, right? And for the patient, you know, they're not divvying up 
their medical health care and their mental health care. They're just trying to be better. And and that was sort of what brought me to this space as a cardiologist, which you mentioned, right? I mean, I was thinking of I was in your blood pressure and high cholesterol and you know heart disease and 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 I, I'm trying to get my patients to do lifestyle changes and behavior changes, uh, and, and, but without helping them overcome these massive boulders that are standing in their way, like like mental health or social determinants of health in other cases, right? And so for the patient, it's just they're just one. And so I think we have to continue to work towards better integrating. There is a well-proven, as you're highlighting, um, model called the impact model, right, or the collaborative care model of embedding behavioral health clinicians within primary care practices. I think that's a piece of integration. It is one model, um, but that, and it's a core part of a model, but I think we have to think about other ways. And able to, part of our work has been, literally around ensuring that the content, the care that's delivered integrates conceptually the physical health and the mental health. So addressing someone's depression in the context of their diabetes or their heart disease, how do those two things fit together? And how can we help you as a patient think about those two things? And then I think we all have to get continue to do better to integrate you know, our behavioral health care with a patient's other circle of care providers to make sure it feels like one unit. There's work still to be done there. I, I don't think we've quite hit the nail on the head. But I also think we've touched on, so I completely agree, I think ultimately it's about how do we give primary care clinicians the tools they need, both the, the ways to know what to do and then making those, you know, how do I get this person what they need and how do I make it easy, as easy as sending a fax? Because for those of you out there that don't know it, these clinicians are still using fax machines in many, you know, many places. And so that's doable. And actually, that's really going to be one of the wonderful, I think, things that does stick that wasn't on Sommer's list is that when I talk to people and, and I know Rena, you're pro- probably still in touch with a lot of the people, you know, at, at places like the Brigham, like at Yale, where I'm on faculty, people are shocked at how well it went when they went virtual around certain things. And once they experience that, it's like, Oh, okay. You mean I can refer this patient with a substance use disorder to Eleanor, or I can take a suicidal patient and refer them somewhere. And I, or I have a cardiology patient and they need this, or I, I need a collaborative consult from a psychiatrist on how to manage this medication. That experience sped up 10 years of training and, and exposure to these new models. And I think that will stick. And that is really important. Um, but it's just about ease of use. We talked about the consumer, but ultimately I think the biggest consumer for driving change is actually the, the primary care clinician that they feel like they're treated like they are when they go into a really good retail store in terms of picking the tools they need. And like, not that I want to advertise for United, but when you look at United's strategy around behavioral health care and what they've done with Sommer's team, the broader Genoa team in one doc way, what's been reported to be the case with able to, you know, no verification required, they're really piecing together an a pretty impressive strategy around how to put those pieces together that's you know certainly the broadest and most heavily invested in, I think, of any of the larger players in the ecosystem. Um, how do I give OptumCare, now the nation's largest primary care footprint in many ways, the tools it needs to deliver on behavioral health care? Really, really powerful comments. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about, Seth, uh, and, and Corbin, I think this, this question is going to come to you, um, is the the centrality uh, and the dependency that you know historically we've had on the primary care clinician, 
Um, you know, again, I'm trained, I trained in a primary care residency, you know, served as, as a primary care clinician for a number of patients. Um, and, you know, we recently made an investment into a company called Eden Health that is virtual primary care. And I can tell you when uh, that deal kind of came through our, our partnership, some people thought it was blasphemy, virtual primary care. It's such a hallowed relationship. You need to have the primary care doc. That person is going to be the point person. But I think what you're starting to see uh, is, you know, entrepreneurs, companies, entities kind of pick apart what actually is primary care. Um, and there may be other homes for patients. And, you know, Corbin, you know, this is, you know, in the context of what you're, you guys are working on, you've kind of, you, in, in many ways, you kind of function uh, as the primary care clinician uh, for, that, for that patient. Um, and then you take uh, that management of risk, as it were, to the payer. Uh, and now it sounds like you guys are getting some traction um, in, in, in negotiating some of these contracts. And so I guess that the question, Corbin, is, you know, what has the willingness for payers been to kind of do these outcomes-based contracts or full risk or delegating some component of risk around a behavioral health clinician to an early stage company like yours? So it's, I think, I think we're seeing more interest uh, as we, as we're able to show our outcomes and as we're willing to put our fees at risk, right? So I think downside risk is really important for, um, for these models to work where we, we're, we're confident in what we're doing and our ability to build those relationships, whether it's virtual or, you know, in the home, we do go into the home and have a brick and mortar component. That multimodality means that we can, and the sort of breadth of services that we provide means that we can treat, you know, a broader set of, of patients and be that, that key point for them. So I think about it as like, where, where is, where's the place that's most apt to build a trusted, deep relationship with a patient? For many, it's primary care for most folks where, you know, they, they probably don't have a chronic condition. They're fairly healthy. Um, sickness comes in, in, you know, more acute doses than in sort of longitudinal doses. That's the right place for the majority of people. But for other conditions, you know, kidney care is one where you're, you're probably not going to have as rich a relationship with your PCP as you might with, you know, a nephrologist or some other type of, this is beyond now my clinical expertise. I'm, I'm not a doctor <laughs> in the room here. Um, no, you're, you're right. You're right. right. Keep <laughs> going. <laughs> building that sort of longitudinal relationship. And then what other assets, you know, we, we have, you know, we have an RN, a physical, you know, physical focused RN who does care coordination for us. We're not primary care. We make sure that we surface those those other comorbidities that go outside of our scope of practice, so that we can coordinate and we can be the ones to communicate to those patients. And and payers hold us to standards to coordinate the care for for those for those patients. So we're seeing we're seeing more traction, I would say, because of our outcomes. But it's 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 challenging because there's such a PCP and ACO mindset um, in this country. You know, the ACA really started driving a lot of these models really around the PCP. And from a macro perspective, that makes complete sense. But, you know, chronic care, sort of specialty-oriented medical homes make sense for, honestly, those who are driving a lot of the costs in our system. You make a really good point. And just to emphasize that, I think if you ask patients, who is your primary care provider, a lot of women would say they're OBGYN. A lot of psychiatric patients would say they're psychiatrists. Uh, obviously a lot of people would say for their kids, the pediatrician or their family practice or internist, you know, depending on who, uh, primary care PCP came to mean something different through reimbursement, which was like family medicine, internist, 
but it, you know, getting back to the consumer discussion, like if we focus on, well, actually, what does the patient think? Uh, you know, Corbin, your example is spot on, right? I think. Yep. So we are we we got to wrap up. One last question um, for each of you. Uh, it, 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 it's universally positive and universally great the amount of attention the behavioral health care uh, system is seeing now. Hundreds, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, invested into behavioral health tech uh, on an annual basis and individual companies raising over $100 million. So with all of this excitement, what should we watch out for? You know, as, as, as experienced operators in this space, you know, what should we be cautious for despite all the excitement? Uh, Seth, I might start with you. Um, you know, I, I am highly cynical and critical, so I'll try to be, I mean, I think I, uh, and I mentioned earlier, I'm on the board of a company that was founded by non-clinicians. Um, but I think we need to be careful when people raise ton, you know, huge amounts of money, especially around consumer models and are going direct to consumer that they are very that in that consumers and investors are careful around words like evidence-based, which are relatively meaningless phrases uh, that can be leveraged and manipulated. And I think we haven't yet seen our Theranos of the telehealth world, but it will happen. There will be examples. They may not make the press where people are just advertising things. And what's happening behind the scenes is in fact, a skeleton of what should be going on. Uh, Samer referenced HIPAA, for example, like we need to be careful. These are serious issues that can have serious repercussions if mishandled. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it won't happen, but I have, you know, like you, Dan, and some of the others here, I see a lot of different companies coming to me for a variety of reasons. And more than half of them don't have a sophisticated understanding of what it is that they are trying to do and solve for. And so, you know, we need to be careful and mindful about that. But we also need to know that if and when that does occur, it doesn't, you know, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And that, you know, if you come back to the data and you diligence what's going on, there's only upside, I think, for patients and providers and payers in the ecosystem. Rena, in this behavioral health boom, what are you looking out for? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like a stodgy old non-innovator, <laughs> which is like, uh, you know, I think it echoes a little bit what Seth's saying, um, outcomes, quality, evidence, like just peek under the hood. Uh, don't get wrapped up in the marketing. I, I, I love the consumer elements, you know, as you can hear kind of my conflict within me. I love that it's elevated the topic, but outcomes, quality, evidence, um, you know, and, and healthcare is messy. And this is where I'm going to sound like the stodgy old healthcare person. Like healthcare is messy and it's ugly and, and it's regulated and there's compliance needs. But those things exist for a reason. And you, you, have, to work, you have to innovate within the context of the incumbent messiness um, or at least understand why they're there and make sure you're still hitting on those needs. Privacy, security, HIPAA, like these things are there to protect patients. And so you can't just skirt around them thinking they're old and stodgy and we want to innovate in healthcare and blow up the system. They're there for a reason and we have to remember that. Find ways to kind of marry that incumbent UG with the innovation that's coming. Perfect. Summer, what should we watch out for? This one is, is very hard. Um, because we are, we are so far away from good that 
it feels like there is limited risk in being very aggressive in trying a full range of things. I agree with what Rena just said. There is a system and the system has intention and it is designed well to, or designed okay at least, to serve that intention. But yet, we need all hands on deck and I can't, to Rena's point, the system is so complicated that I don't think any one innovator or any one entrepreneur or any one payer figures this out on their own. It's going to be a collective effort. So you need dollars like you're talking about out in the market to bring as many people into the fold as we can. Yeah, a lot of them are going to crash and burn. Like Seth said, we're probably going to have a Theranos or two. That's unfortunate, but maybe that's what the, you know, what is that saying? The the path to somewhere is riddled with, you know, graveyards. Uh, I don't know the saying. I didn't nail that one. But you know what I'm getting with. We have to screw up a few times if we're going to get from here to somewhere better. No, that's great. And Corbin, I'll give you the last word. Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, things things to watch out for. So I think, you know, a, a lot of barriers to entry have have come down. And I think what you then see is a lot of emerging players who are more point solutions. So I'll go back to the evidence point. Evidence is often part of a, a comprehensive set of recommendations. You can't sort of cherry pick one or two of those things and say, well, this is evidence-based because I pulled out one of these things, which is often what point solutions do. So I would watch out from that perspective. But what, what I'd really watch out for is we're, 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 we're a sophisticated, uh, me less so than others, sophisticated audience of of people who have been in healthcare all, our whole career, consumers are not. And so what it then creates is just confusion on, you know, if it's by price or by sort of the, the sort of point solution, um, patients sort of picking and choosing and, and being confused on what really is the evidence base, what really will help me as an individual be better. So those are the things that, that I would watch out for. Fabulous discussion. I know our, our audience really appreciated this. I know that I did. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, I really appreciate all the work that, that you have done and that you are going to continue to do to improve the care of our populations uh, managing behavioral health issues. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast. If you enjoy these types of conversations and perspectives, then we as the podcast producer encourage you to check out the related DHIS West Summit at dhis.net backslash west. For 10% off the conference registration, please use the discount code DHISpodcast. <laughs>